heavily, I'm a clown. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, the show about Bitcoin and Bitcoin refrigerator magnets. Today, episode 30, I had my friend Zane Pocock on the show. Super smart guy, super fun to talk to. I know I say that every single time, but I mean it. I love doing this podcast and getting to talk with so many interesting and smart people from all over the world with so many diverse and interesting perspectives. And we can all bring it back to first principles and talk about ideologies that we hold close to the chest, like freedom and libertarianism and liberty. You guys are going to love this talk. This was really fun. I'm going to go ahead and get right to it, and I will come back and talk with you guys at the end. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF. 1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Zane, how you doing, man? I'm good, man. How are you? Dude, I am so excited to have you. Uh, this is actually Zane's first podcast appearance and super underrated guy. Like, I'm, I'm great. This is like a diamond in the rough here because not enough people um, know Zane. He doesn't get enough attention and him and I have spent a decent amount of time back and forth now a couple times on Zoom and so many interesting things to say. Um, Zane, why don't you tell us like a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah, so I, um, you know, you can, you can tell probably from my strong accent, I'm um, originally from New Zealand. Uh, I moved to the US, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago now. And um, yeah, basically I, I was in Sydney working on um, this uh, health tech startup. Um, and uh, basically like that was sort of when I was, I was falling down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And I, I'd had these early uh, interests in, in Bitcoin uh, back even before that, like, I don't know, 2012, 2013. And I remember just naturally understanding this idea of needing an internet, like bearer asset. But I had these people in my life that I really trusted uh, with, with, you know, investment decisions and an understanding of money and you know I'd, I'd ask them about it and all of them sort of gave me the Warren Buffett response which was like there might be something here but you know I don't understand it and so you know it's mm. not good to invest in it and um, yeah so I sort of dismissed it initially um, I then got interested again um, you know when when uh, I can't, can't remember the years when the like I think the second big bubble was happening, um, got set up on on Mount Gox, then that collapsed, and that sort of scared me off for, for years again. Um, and anyway, when I was when I was in Sydney, like basically a whole lot of things coalesced for me. Um, I was doing uh, this work on this health tech company, and one of my colleagues was always following the Bitcoin charts, and I was like, "Fuck, is that thing still around?" Um, and so he ended up going off and starting his own company and I did a bit of consulting work for him and he paid me in Bitcoin. Mm. And the same day that I was sending him my Bitcoin address, I was um, doing, you know, that, that semi-regular Google audit of yourself that, that I think, you know, everyone does every now and then just like checking out because like my, my views in life were changing at the time. I was like checking out what the hell I've said publicly that comes up on Google that I don't agree with anymore. And um, I found that the former um, Secretary of Homeland Security in the US had quoted me in a research piece that he'd put together on the dangers of the deep web. Wow. Um, and I'd written this article um, when I was in college about like basically how to navigate the deep web. Um, you know, because yeah, it's college media, you know, you're, you're trying to um, poke the bear and things like this. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I, I published this article and basically there were all these things that coalesced for me at the same time. Um, and so, you know, at this time I, I won the green card lottery. So I knew I was moving to America. I'm like, it's kind of freaking out that maybe I'm now on the radar in the U S cause this like secretary of Homeland security is literally quoting me in articles about the deep web and I'm getting paid in Bitcoin. And, um, I don't know, I suppose the, the rest is history that those, those three things coalescing, 
um, sort of send you tumbling down this rabbit hole. Now, and uh, we were talking before you started that you've been working on some coding projects lately, but like, were you into coding before Bitcoin or did Bitcoin kind of get you introduced to that? Yeah, so I'd, I'd sort of um, just, again, intuitively recognized that, um, you know, everything in the future was going to be online. And so when I was at college, I sort of paid my way through uni by doing um, like web development like consulting work for people. I just taught myself how to how to run a web server, how to build websites and, and things like this. So it's not really coding per se. Mm. I think I think most developers would, would laugh at the idea that websites are coding. Um, but I'd been doing that and then when I moved to Sydney I, I sort of had had it in mind that I was going to be a mobile developer. Um, so actually the the health tech company that I ended up at, I um, had built our very first like beta product as an Android app. Um, that was sort of how I got in the door. Um, anyway, well, one thing led to another, and I, I didn't end up doing developing. Like it was, it was sort of a startup environment, and at a certain point, it turned out that I was the only person that knew how to do marketing. So mm-hmm. I ended up doing doing that, and sort of woke up four years later. And I was like, "Fuck, I'm a marketer." Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd always had this interest in coding. But you know, I suppose you get distracted by where your paycheck's going to come from and things like this. And it's it's just been this this ongoing thing that I've wanted to do, um, and I, I you know gone back and forth in it forever yeah you know what i keep coming back to is like i spend all this time you know i've been creating content like around cryptocurrency for probably like two years now and uh i think like the last year and a half of it pretty much has been strictly bitcoin focused and i talk i have like all these talking points and i'm i've always been like an avid reader and i've read all these economics books and stuff and at the end of the day i keep coming back to this cypherpunk mantra you know which is like cypherpunks build cypherpunks code um and and the cypherpunk thing is like it's like a real no-no in their community or at least you know in the old cypherpunk community to come up with all these ideas and talking points and not have the code to like execute it or back it up because otherwise you're just making noise um and that's always really stuck with me like i'm always have that in the back of my head i'm like all right i need to get back to back to basics i need to focus on what's important i need to build solutions Right, because we can sit here and talk about it till we're blue in the face. We can convert everybody to our ideology, but if we can't build solutions, then what good is it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I mean, Bitcoin's great for that, and and I've found the same thing. Like, and you know, just that I don't know. You have to have direct experiences with it, I think, to understand the power of it. But just how personally empowering code can be. Hmm. Um, so you know, when Wasabi was first like gaining a little bit of popularity. Um, when was I making this? Like start of this year. Um, I was starting to get frustrated with um, not really having an idea of, um, you know, how long it would take for the next like Wasabi uh, mix to, to happen. Because um, I, I think they fixed it up recently. I haven't done much mixing recently, but um, basically like I, I'd find that I'd wait like hours and hours to get a coin mixed through. And I was like, man, this is, there's something weird about this. So, you know, I just like wrote this little script to try and work out like how frequent the, the Wasabi like mixes were and, you know, get an estimate based on like the time and, and these sorts of things as to when I could expect like my next round to be mixed. Um, so, you know, it's a silly tool. Like I never even like gave it to anyone else to use, but you know, it just solves this one tiny little personal problem. And rather than complaining about it, it's like, well, you know, this, this stuff is, you know, there's an API that you can hit and, and you can, you can see what's going on. Um, like just, just fix your problem. Like don't, don't complain about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you might've been able to get that merged into, uh, into a sobby actually. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> the, the desire. Um, but yeah, you were telling me, you know, like part of what keeps bringing you back to code is like these problems that you see um, that are pain points for people. Uh, and we were talking about like the accounting of Bitcoin. Like it, I have so many questions that I, I've talked to lawyers, I've talked to accountants, I've talked to like CPAs, I've talked to coders, I've talked to like so many smart people about Bitcoin. And I still have so many questions and I don't even know who to ask because I don't even think there are any right answers because it's just so painful. Like talking about trying to, you know, trying to do your taxes is one thing. Like if you spend your Bitcoin on a cup of coffee or like a Lamborghini, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, you have to track your Satoshis on the first in first out basis and you have to like do it by UTXO and it gets messy because, you know, if you buy um, 100,000 Satoshis and then you only spend 20,000 of them, right? 
20,000 of that first in first out Satoshi basis comes out, you know, it's, it's just a real pain in the ass um, for trying to track like a currency. Uh, but it gets even worse because we were, we were talking like, how do you track like minor fees and like Wasabi fees and like other types of little fees that are just a part of using Bitcoin on a tax basis on a first in first out. Like it, it's, it's so painful. It's almost impossible. Yeah, exactly. And you know, this is something that I've asked the exact same questions and I've asked accountants who sort of are active in the space and they don't really have a clear answer on it. Um, because, you know, of course, I, I think probably most Bitcoiners understand that, you know, because at least in the US, Bitcoin is treated as a commodity and so you're taxed on that capital gains basis. Um, but it gets muddy because, you know, when you, when you make a transaction and you pay that minor fee, you know, I think there's a really strong argument that you're paying the miners for the service of securing the network. Hmm. Um, and so technically, based on my understanding, and I'm, I'm not, I, I grew up with the, my, both my parents are accountants, so I sort of grew up with, with this like strange interest in accounting, even though it's not all that interesting to most people. Um, just intuitively, I'm like, well, you know, if this is treated as a commodity and I'm using it to pay for that service, then surely you're getting taxed on your like mining fees. Um, I haven't got a satisfying answer on that yet. Like most, most people have said, no, you're not, but haven't really explained why you're not. Mm. Um, so if anyone out there's listening and they, they know, uh, ping us because um, I'm sure as hell interested in it. Maybe they're um, just trying to build the narrative that no, you're not because that would make the accounting headache worse. And I don't want to yeah. have to deal with that uh, as an accountant. So, but, but it, it raises a good point. It's like, how do you, how do you even begin to deal with that? Um, it, and, and to me, using a first in first out basis for something that is already categorized according to UTXOs doesn't make any sense. Like there's like this weird crossover where it's like, okay, I bought um, Satoshi's, it, it would make more sense if Bitcoin was completely fungible, but it isn't because always in a sense, like whatever UTXO set you have is it's unique because it is that UTXO set, right? So if I buy UTXOs um, and then I hold those for like years and years and years, but I've been spending and using Bitcoin in some way or another, um, but they're different UTXOs on a tax basis that doesn't correlate, right? It, it's still first in first out, even though those UTXOs I still have, um, that is really confusing to me. And how do you even explain that to someone who doesn't know what a UTXO is? Yeah. I mean, I suppose it probably needs like legal precedent in some way. Um, again, I'm, I'm talking out of my ass. I'm, I'm not an accountant or a lawyer. Um, but the question that comes to mind is that um, I suppose I could have done this research. I, I've just realized the, the question to ask is, so when you buy like gold bars or, or whatever, like if you buy a, I don't, I don't know how gold's weighed. Like I sort of, I sort of skipped the whole gold step of getting into Bitcoin. Mm. Um, but I suppose like if you buy gold bars over time, um, you know, they're all stamped an individual and, um, you know, gold itself is fungible, but perhaps the individual bars aren't. Mm. Um, I wonder how they're taxed. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's um, first in, first out. Because, um, you know, that's a very tangible view of how a UTXO model would work. Mm. That's a good um, point. I wonder. I bet somebody that's listening to this right now will tweet at me and be like, oh, no, it's this. Um, so please I hope do so. that yeah. so that we can learn. Tweet at both maybe of it'll be, Maybe it'll be one of those cases where the, the law is that it's first in, first out, and you're like, that's just ridiculous. You know, you, you just know intuitively that it's stupid, but it's still what you have to abide by. Right, yeah. And I don't know, would you argue, like, is gold more fungible than Bitcoin? Is it less fungible? I would say it's, like, differently fungible. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Again, I, again, I'm not, I'm not, I missed the gold bug step, but I suppose you'd have an idea of that of, as to whether, um, certain like gold, uh, stamps trade at a premium to others. Like maybe your, I don't know, what are they called? Like your American Eagle. Trade oh yeah, they absolutely your... do. Yeah, they absolutely do. Like certain mints, um, at certain like, um, yeah, like certain, issuers are like they're more reputable or they might carry like a certain premium and it's the same thing with like gold coins like people pay pay a premium for certain mints for whatever reason um right yeah sense, but but we don't we don't need a utxo to be more reputable right because we can say it ourselves 
Right. And, and it, well, it's funny too, because like, especially in our consumerist economy, like if we, if we were to look at everything as if you were only paying for the underlying commodity, then we would be laughing at people paying $2,000 for a leather purse, right? Because the underlying value of the commodity <laughs> of the leather is like probably 17 cents, but you're paying $2,000 for the brand name. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. I love it. Yeah. Um, and actually speaking of that, uh, we were talking before this about um, a topic that I find really interesting, and I think that you're you're really into it too. Is but this idea of um, you know as we move towards a Bitcoin world, and uh, people like Trace Mayer have talked about how you, you need to start thinking in Bitcoin, you need to start thinking in satoshis, and if you're not making satoshis, then you're losing money. And this is because of the phenomenon of the opportunity cost of money. And and Parker Lewis talks about this a lot, and it's probably going to significantly affect the business world in our lifetime because if there's all this return that we can get in Bitcoin just by taking our capital and, and deferring consumption with it there, um, then why would we go out and create a business that doesn't generate us a return in Satoshi's uh, if, because that opportunity cost is there? Yeah, it's, um, it's such an interesting topic. And I think it, um, I think it speaks to um, like the genius of Trace Mayer as well to, to, to some extent, like, you know, you know, this guy is one of the most active people investing in Bitcoin companies. And he's talked about it a lot on podcasts that his investments are based on um, earning Bitcoin as well as, you know, obviously earning dollars. But I don't know. I feel like I feel like the dollars get cancelled out as long as Bitcoin continues on its trajectory. I don't, don't think you even need to mention it. Um, maybe you need to mention it on a year-by-year sort of tax basis. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's fascinating to me. And I, I think there's... Um, you know, there's a few like accounting systems that have been developed that, that are for like traders. Um, Cause you know, that's been one of the early like network effects of Bitcoin, I guess is, is the, um, is the scambling model, you know, the, the shitcoin shitcoin casino. Um, but I think, you know, because of this, this, uh, you know, the value of money, um, the opportunity cost of money, um, people are probably hesitant to, to be starting businesses at the moment. Like you're, you're better off just buying and holding um, and not taking on that risk. And I think you even see that with some of like the best Bitcoiners in the space. Um, they're all like working like nine to five fiat jobs to stack sats. Like hmm. these are people that I think are, are probably well positioned to be the business leaders of some sort of future Bitcoin world. And they've obviously weighed up that opportunity cost and said, yeah, the best thing that you can do right now is, is, um, you know, save this this monetary base mm-hmm. uh, while it's still so dramatically undervalued. Um, but if that money is so dramatically undervalued, then yeah, businesses like like Kraken and things like this, who who obviously um, you know, I, I haven't seen their books, and I suspect um, you know they're, they're a private company, so so I don't think many people would have. But you know, if Chase May has anything to go by, it sounds like they're making a Bitcoin denominated profit. Hmm. Um, which is crazy to me. I, I think it shows again the the fact that one of these early business models that works is again that that scambling model. Um, perhaps we're now entering a phase where there might be some business services that you can offer that will that will make money in in Bitcoin terms. Um, I'm skeptical of some of the loan banking that's that's arising at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, they obviously position themselves to make a Bitcoin profit. Um, you know, everyone that, that's offering these services is talking in terms of Bitcoin. They're, they're obviously trying to stack sats. Um, but I don't know. Like, I think the interest rates that you see on them sort of speaks to the risk of that model, that, that, uh, the risk that's inherent to trying to make a Bitcoin denominator profit at the moment. Yeah, I have a lot of really strong thoughts um, about all these these interest-bearing products that are coming to market. Um, you know, you see it like just recently, like Coinbase announced this. It's like a it's like a paltry 1.25 APR for holding um, USDC. But I can think of so many risks that are there. Like I would I would rather take my dollars and put them in a savings account with an FDIC insured bank than give them to Coinbase because Coinbase like they can't get FDIC insurance for. Um, Therefore, USDC, like they're not buddy buddy with the money printers, like like any FDIC regulated bank is. So it's it, to me, it just doesn't make any sense. And then it's like if and if I was going to just put money in and let it sit somewhere, why wouldn't I just put it in Bitcoin? Like 
again, the opportunity cost of money. Like it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. And, and you know, this, this is all speculation, but I, I'm so skeptical of, of Coinbase. Like they, they, they kind of scare me a little bit, you know, they're, they're always offering new shit coins and things like this. And um, you know, this, this, yeah, paying interest on some sort of stable coin. I'm like, man, they, they obviously really need this money coming in somehow. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical of their cash flow. I, mm. I don't know. It's, um, it, it, it seems to me that, that there would be a reason why they're doing all of these things that just make no sense. Cause like, what are they doing with that money to, to be paying you interest on these stable coins? Right. You know, they have to be, they have to be taking on some level of risk. And this is a problem that I've, I've had with, um, you know, I'm, I'm a, a free banking person. Like I, I, I think that that banks that, uh, you know, take on too much risk, you're going to fail and like they should be allowed to fail. That's, <laughs> that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I'd never want to say that, oh, Coinbase shouldn't be allowed to do this. Like that, that's not what I believe at all. But certainly if you're thinking about putting money into these sorts of um, operations, you should be thinking really, really carefully about the risk that they're taking on to be giving you those returns. Mm. Um, I don't know. It, it just makes me really skeptical. Um, I had the same issue with, with you know, the likes of BlockFi and, and things like this. Um, and, you know, I don't want to, again, I don't want to speak badly about them because I'm not familiar enough with, um, you know, obviously their business operations. You, you can only see so far, but, you know, if you're paying 6% plus interest, um, you know, people have been trained to see these sorts of things. These savings accounts is something that's, that's like, you know, obviously FDIC insurance and risk-free. Right. Um, and like, you really need to question what they're doing with that money to, yeah. to get that sort of return. And in, in um, that sense, I think it's very deceptive um, because, and because of exactly what you just said, you know, like we are used to thinking uh, in a certain way about money and about saving and about return and about risk. And almost all of it is wrong, right? I mean, you and, you and I know that, but, but the average person doesn't. And I would argue probably even the average Bitcoiner doesn't um, understand those things that fluently, right? They might have some vague ideas, um, but they might not have it completely fleshed out. And when a product like this comes along, at first glance, it might appear like a great deal. It's like it's really safe. You know, it's this risk-free return. Um, but I think any time, you know, because we're talking about the opportunity cost of money here and, and any time you're going to try to beat that opportunity cost of money, which is just literally deferring consumption, um, there's going to be risk. There has to be risk because that's how markets work, right? If, if there was no such thing as risk and opportunity cost, then there wouldn't be any such thing as markets. Like human, human action wouldn't, wouldn't define profit. It would, it would just, we would do everything instantaneously and we would constantly meet demand as it as it emerged and we wouldn't have any need for money in the first place um but that's just a product of of uh human action and and entrepreneurs rising to meet that human action yeah and and i mean i think um on that note like time's scarce so you know i I think um you know it's hard to do all of your own research on everything like we always talk about like doing your own research in bitcoin and, and i'm i'm very strict about it like you know i verify signatures on software that I download and things like thanks to Bitcoin. I didn't do that beforehand, Mm. but you know, some of the stuff's hard. Some of the stuff's really complex and you know, people are working like their nine to five and you know, uh, maybe don't have enough time. Um, What I was going to say on that note though, is that I think probably a lot of Bitcoiners understand Bitcoin intuitively, but haven't necessarily done their Austrian economics homework. Um, Like I, I really think, and I hadn't either until like, I don't know, late last year when, when we had this, uh, you know, Justin Moon started this Austrian economics book club. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was like a whole extra level to the rabbit hole. And, you know, we always talk about Austrian economics. I don't think that, that most people have necessarily read it all. No. Um, uh, and sorry, it, not, not all of it, but, you know, at least read some of it. And, and on, the, on this model of these interest-bearing accounts, like there's, there's a classic sort of Austrian arguments that I come back to time and time again that I think if people understood it, it would really help them under help them see this properly, which is that, you know, traditionally there's there's been a separation between money warehousing and loan banking. Mm-hmm. Um and uh you know one of the reasons why you know fractional reserve banking sort of became an issue and why I think people have been trained into this idea that you know they should always be earning interest and that it's risk free is because those lines between loans and warehouses became blurred. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you know th- this is this is one of my yeah i wrote an article a while back about you know uh the mystery of finance and i was talking about the BlockFi products um again i'm not trying to shit on BlockFi, but just you know looking at at the way that i see it um i was really concerned that they were commingling funds between their um between their uh you know so-called crypto backed loans where you know you put up your bitcoin as collateral and and you know get i don't know your your fiat loan that you pay back with interest you know they were commingling those bitcoin with the bitcoin that are um you know interest bearing Mm -hmm. and there's completely different risk models there so the issue was well aside from the fact that people don't understand the risk of the um of the interest bearing account there's an issue there with the commingling because if they fuck up the risk on um sorry i never asked you in advance if i could swear i swear like a sailor no you're fine um sorry sorry to the listeners um you know, there's an issue there where um, the default risk that you're taking on in this 6% paying interest account is actually the same default risk as your collateralized fiat loan. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a massive issue to me. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the crypto-backed fiat loan actually made a lot of sense to me. I, I think it's probably one of the better like financial um, instruments that's come out of this Bitcoin space so far. I can totally see the case for it. You don't have to pay your... Um, you know, you don't have to pay your uh, capital gains while unlocking mm-hmm. some fiat funds. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Unchanged does this really well where the collateral is locked up in a multi-sig address that's, that's individual to you. So, you know, you don't have control over that asset. I think you hold one key, they hold one key, and then there's a third party that holds another key. Mm-hmm. But you can audit that address where your collateral is held. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me. Um, I guess I, I started to freak out with BlockFi when, you know, they announced this crypto back loan and these, these funds are being mixed. Like if mm-hmm. you're, you know, when you offer up collateral on this loan, it's still your property. Unless, unless by, by the contracts that you've signed with them, you forfeit that collateral at a certain point because of non-payment, that's still your, that's still your asset. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's these, there's these things about Bitcoin that are really powerful. You know, being able to audit the status of your collateral is like a Bitcoin native thing that should be celebrated. It's right. freaking awesome. Right. And when um, we're not used to thinking in those terms yet. Like Bitcoiners should be demanding, um, uh, you know, the ability to audit anything. You know, we should be demanding first layer settlement. Um, you know, we should be demanding products that eventually make their way to first layer settlement. We don't want to end up in this world, right, with all this, with um, like the rehyp- rehypothecation. Uh, we, don't, we, we don't, like, you don't want to trust uh, Trezor's nodes and Coinbase's nodes that, that what you're getting is Bitcoin. You don't want to trust Coinbase IOUs, right? That you own Bitcoin. You need to settle to first layer, right? At some point, you know, and, and when I say that, like lightning, I consider like a lightning transaction, inevitable settlement to first layer, right? Um, something that I believe would trustlessly eventually settle on first layer. Um, we, we, but we're not used to thinking that way. And, and, um, like in regards to what you were just saying, you know, there was a reason that usury was illegal for such a long time in so many parts of the world uh, is because of like a, exactly the types of things you're describing is because these relationships between warehousing and, and uh, loaning uh, loans be- have become so incestuous in our financial system that we're not used to even separating them out and thinking about them differently. Um, and that, that's just a really dangerous precedent, especially in this world where the opportunity cost of money is so high and risk must be so high in order to increase the amount of Satoshis that you're actually earning on any given venture. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is also why people are primed to, um, to uh, be convinced to put up with negative interest rates, which I'm sure will, will eventually come to the consumer as well. I mean, you know, obviously it's, it's um, at the banking level at the moment in Europe and it's probably coming to America um, very soon. Um, but, you know, I, I remember reading this, this article in Bloomberg, I think Joe, Joe Weisenthal wrote it about how, you know, people shouldn't feel like they're entitled to earning interest in, in their bank account. Hmm. And the, the, the ironic thing here is that I actually agree with him, except for the fact that, um, you know, the, the Austrian answer to this is right, but you're conflating warehousing with um, with loan banking, right. and so he's saying like you shouldn't feel like you're entitled to to earn interest on money that you're storing. And I'm right, like, right. yeah, I agree. I actually would expect to pay a fee, 
And again, speaking about Bitcoin native things, uh, and again, shilling, uh, you know, uh, unchained capital, um, you know, I, I really like that, um, you know, when they hold a, a key for you, you know, you're, you're paying them effectively. Like, I, I see this as like the Bitcoin native warehousing, where like you can pay a third party to hold one of your multi-sig keys. Mm. Um, you know, you're paying them for the security of storing your funds, but it comes with a certain peace of mind. You're buying a service from them to help you, you know, secure your, your Bitcoin. Um, but, you know, th this article that Joe's writing, it's like he's, he's technically right. Like if you're warehousing wealth, you should probably expect to pay a fee for that. But modern banking is not money warehousing. Right, modern right. banking is all loan banking. Yeah. And of course, yeah, damn right. I want to earn interest if I'm loaning the bank money. Right, right. And, and, but there's like three steps of propaganda that you have to undo there to even get to like the root of the problem. Because it's like, well, of course I would expect to, to pay to have to store my money, but I would also expect that it wouldn't be constantly inflated by a government that's using it to essentially uh, tax its citizens, right? And, yeah. and I would also assume that that bank wouldn't be then taking that money and using it and loaning it out and rehypothecating it. Um, and that they would actually be storing my specific wealth in their warehouse and not touching it because that's what I'm paying them to do, right? But how do we get through all that? Like, you can't, like I guarantee you, Joe wasn't thinking about that when he wrote that article. He was just trying to say, well, society doesn't owe you. Um, it's like the same guy on Twitter that was saying, society doesn't owe you a store of value. Um, it's like, okay, well, yeah. we're, we're so off track at this point that we're, we're three degrees of separation away from the real problem. Yeah, yeah, it's... um. But it's just one of these funny things, and you know, it, it's, it exposes where there's some cognitive dissonance and 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 these um these mindsets and these mental models. Because I think people intuitively understand some of the Austrian case, but mm -hmm. then they re they retrofit this intuition into what they're taught about the world. So Joe, I think I think he's actually right. Like he intuitively knows that maybe you might expect to pay a fee for a warehousing service, but the intuition sort of stops there and then he retrofits it into, and, and again, I'm not meaning to shit on Joe. Like I think he's like one of our most precious um, pre-coiners. Um, I think he often has, I think he often has good points. Um, but um, you know, he, he, he has this intuition and then it sort of stops there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you have this intuition and then you take it to its logical extreme within the parameter that you have, learned to see the world which is uh you know missing the point that all modern banking is loan banking mm -hmm. um, that, yeah it's interesting yeah that and that brings up like a really good segue because before this we were talking about um some like the power of cognitive dissonance and, and how much of a role it plays in the way we do pretty much everything. Cause we were talking about how um, you're, you're a recovering left-wing idealist, right? That's, that's what I wrote. Yeah. Down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and this idea of like, these 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 polarizing political ideologies that at the end of the day like a lot of them a lot of their talking points and a lot of like the the mantras and the the focus that a lot of these people that are all wrapped up in this system spend their time and energy focusing on have nothing to do with anything that's that's important and and I was describing earlier that I I look at the American bipartisan political system as a hegelian dialectic and I my best way of explaining it is to think of a force vector um, and since this is audio, I can't like visually represent this with my hands, but think of a force vector with two forces pulling um, diagonally on opposite sides of the square. And, it, you know, it, it appears as if um, one side is pulling to the left towards, you know, whatever it is the left represents and one side is pulling towards the right towards whatever it is the right represents. But in reality, they're both pulling diagonally and taking us towards totalitarianism and despotism to achieve whatever ridiculous social order it is that they want. Um, and, and further and further away from, from liberty and freedom, which is down at the bottom, right? Not up at the top where, where the despotism is. And this idea of cognitive dissonance, like Zane had some really interesting thoughts on this. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, it's, it's this interesting thing. And, and, you know, again, through the Austrian lens, you like learn to question these priors. And I think um, I haven't actually read this text, but um, I, I really need to. I, I think... Um, Hayek is supposed to have some um, some thoughts on this. I think he wrote an article on intellectuals and socialism, and, and basically, like you know, the issue is that is is where your your priors lie, like where your starting point is. And, and certainly, when I was in the left wing mindset, you know, there's 
uh, I don't know. Let's talk about the social justice angle to it. Like, you know, I was, I was on college and this whole, like this whole uh, big thing about like rape culture was starting to, to mm-hmm. be this, like this talking point. Right. And, and, you know, it was, it was the early days of, of diving into this um, realm of, of, thinking where basically we've, we've ended up at this final point where men are just inherently evil. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that was the start of the slip. And to be honest, like I was, I was totally brainwashed by this stuff myself. Right. Um, and, oh, and the men go along with it cause they just want to get laid. Right. Yeah, for sure. But, oh man, I mean, there's funny things about this cause like I, there's a, uh, this is probably a little controversial, but um, you know, Joe Rogan talks about this a lot. He's like, he's like, have you, have you looked at the men that sort of suck up to like these extreme feminist ideals? He's like, they're weasels. Like, you know, they're, they're not like, you know, the irony is that it's going to backfire for them because like they don't have a lot of the, the attributes that are, that are going to be attractive in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I, I mean, I suppose that's a bit of a tangent, but you know, you start from this, this prior, I suppose in the left wing and social justice mindset where you're like, well, like, yeah, obviously rape's evil and men tend to do it. So therefore men are evil. Right. Whereas, and so you end up tumbling down this hole where like everything that the, the left wing mindset like sort of throws up reinforces that view and takes you the step further and it's all intellectualized. And, um, you know, we, we listen to our, um, clergymen in the media who are reinforcing these ideas and, and mm-hmm. things like this. And there's all um, this wrong think that, that constantly has to be addressed. It's like, well, but what if, what if, you know, the person who got raped put themselves in a bad situation? Well, now you're blaming the victim and you can never, and it's just like, it, they have to like constantly establish a narrative or else their, their intellectualism falls apart. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and um, yeah, it sort of, it sort of tumbles you. And, um, but the issue is that you never, you know, things will pop up, which make you question this. And this is the, um, this is the cognitive dissonance. Like, you know, again, on the social justice angle, like at a certain point, people, you know, people, let's talk about trans rights, for example. Like at a certain point, someone will point out like how this transpires into, um, I know this is all controversial stuff, but how this transpires into um, sports. Like, you know, should, should someone who has been biologically male be able to, like, compete against, like, against women? And, you know, they, they dominate them. And so you end up in this, this realm where it's like, yeah, well, clearly, like, the, the two are biologically different. Like, mm-hmm. no, no shit. Like, you don't even have to be against, like, trans rights to, to feel that way. You can, you can believe in people's right to self-ownership and to do whatever the fuck they want with their own body while also saying... Like, yeah, but, you know, maybe we should think about whether they compete in the same sports. Right, um, right. But, you know, everyone thinks that. Everyone. I, I would dare anyone who's on this sort of, like, social justice bandwagon to deny that, like, there's actual biological differences. It's just a fucking fact. Right. But you're not allowed to say that. Right. And so this is where that cognitive dissonance comes in. You, like, you hold that thought in the back of your mind where you're like, yeah, this is obviously fucking broken. Like, what are we talking about here? How can we not confront this? very basic fact while not confronting that very basic fact you know mm-hmm. you have to keep tumbling along this direction that you know intellectuals and socialism take you along and so i guess on on these particular issues as well like you know whether it's like the so-called rape culture or whether it's like on trans rights and things like this um leaving aside other cultural issues you know the, the libertarian mindset is just so easy when you come to these issues because it starts with like you know, there's, there's, you know, it depends on, I suppose, whether you've like got a religious bent within libertarianism or whether you're like a, a atheist libertarian. So that's a separate argument. But leaving that aside, like to, to look at it just strictly by, I suppose, what Rothbard would, would argue, it's like, yeah, people have a right to self-ownership. Like that's your starting point. Like rape's bad because you violate their like right to self-ownership. Like that, that's a crime regardless of whether it's like some weird like boogeyman culture that the intellectuals have come up with like, right right go, go yeah figure. the really cool thing about libertarian thinking to me uh is that you get to start at first basis and then logically proceed your way through everything yeah and there's no like there's none of this like okay well first we have to establish the narrative and then it's like um there's no like these none of these intellectualisms right there's none of that well it's like um well Precisely. men and women are equal so you can't say that they're biologically and chemically different and it's like, 
okay. All right, well, let's just ignore that that little blunder and keep moving. Uh, with, with libertarianism, like, you don't have that. You start at the bottom and, like, you build your way up logically. Like, um, I, I, I think a good example of this, you know, in this, in this Hegelian dialectic um, bipolar political system that we have in America that is designed, right? Like, well, whether it's intentionally designed or not to, to move towards despotism, I think you could probably make arguments for, for a little bit of both there, but um, it certainly is taking us towards despotism. And, and you, you can see, look at people that, that are very politically charged, right? They're either hard left or they're hard right. Um, and they're, they're tweeting about Trump all the time, you know, whether they're his biggest supporter or his biggest critic. Um, you can't ignore the fact that anybody who's caught up in this political system, this I'm on your team or, you know, I'm on the other team or you're my enemy or I'm, I'm with you. Um, they're willing to ignore pretty much anything that, that their preferred candidate or their team does um, that ordinarily they ideologically wouldn't agree with. And, mm -hmm. and a good example of this is like pretty much like it, anything that, that a candidate on the other team does um, that, that ordinarily they would be for, like if you were just having a casual conversation with them, when that candidate does it, they either ignore it or they find a way to spin it into something that's bad or wrong or evil. Um, and, and what a strange way of thinking. Like imagine if we thought that way about other things. Um, I, I, I can't even really think of a good logical example because it's so strange. It's so foreign, but we're, we're so tribal in our thinking because we've been so polarized, so conditioned to think that it's us or them, that it's this team or that team, that we can't logically think through these ideas anymore. Yeah. And I think this comes down to like one of the issues with like this political centralization is like, you know, there's, there's a very basic fact at play here, which is that humans are tribal. Right. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, even, even within, within the U S I guess, if you've got like the leftist, like sort of like, coastal states and then sort of the more right-leaning like rest of the entire country um then like you have to you know it, it gets antagonized and these people fucking hate each other but it's like no you've just got different beliefs like people are people are tribal like that's okay that's something that that you can celebrate and you know people uh, i guess like in europe like there's there's this interesting thing going on with with like all of the um you refugees coming out of like <laughs> coming out of the part of the world that America's destroyed with all of their needless wars, um, who now need new homes. Um, you know, like people are reacting badly to all of these people flooding into their country. And it's like, you, you can watch this and say, yeah, like everyone's in, everyone's kind of in the right here. Mm -hmm. Like the, the people at, at, who are at home and saying like, wait, my country's changing underneath me. Like what the hell's going on? Like they're kind of, they're cool, you know? Like humans are tribal. They've got a culture, and uh, you know, a, a, you know, they've got their village, and they've got the the people and the beliefs that they share, and that's how cultures work. And yeah, people respond badly to to that being changed on them. Um, but you know, we have these huge like centralized political forces who are then going to come down and just tell you what you have to do, mm -hmm. what you have to believe. And it's like, wait, you you really? I think I think something really big happened with with Trump, like. I don't know. This, this was, this was part of my own like red pilling. Like I, I like anyone like, well, like most people, I think um, particularly outside of America, like I obviously thought that Hillary was going to win, um, you know, outside of the U S our media coverage is uh, basically just like, basically just the Democrat storyline. Like there's, mm. there's just no questioning it. Um, and maybe this is more specific to Australia and New Zealand, but there's just no questioning it. Like, you know, it was just, like Hillary all the way. Interesting. And, um, you know, this was part of my own waking up to, to the fact that the world is a little bit different to what we've been led to believe and think it is. Um, because when that happened, I was like, wait, so why was literally everyone wrong about this? They clearly, there's clearly something in our reality that they're missing and missing dramatically too. Mm -hmm. Like, um, and, you know, you know, this, again, this sort of leads into the Bitcoin angle because it's like, well, there are, there are obviously people in here that have, like, been massively um, upset by the status quo, like, massively forgotten mm. and left behind. And, you know, thanks to the Bitcoin mindset, I'm not particularly political. I pay attention to it every now and then because, you know, the next step of the, the Trumpist um, 
type of paradigm that we live in is that, you know, again, regardless of what you believe or what side you're on and things like this, like what's been going on for the last three years does actually look a lot like a coup. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the, the opposing side, the establishment side has basically spent his entire presidency. I'm not, I'm not a Trump fan, by the way. I I feel like I always have to clarify this when I talk about like American politics. I'm really not a, really not a fan. Yeah. But you can't unsee the fact that there's basically been this state coup going on um, for his entire presidency. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, so the people that he appealed to in his election have now watched, you know, they got told like that they live in this, this like idea of some democracy where like, you know, their vote matters and all this sort of shit. And then they've watched for his entire presidency, what they voted for has been systematically undermined for four years. And it's like, what, what do you think that that's going to do to this, this paradigm where people believe in the structure? I, I, think, it's, I think it's something that, that you're not going to be able to undo. Uh, it's very interesting as we sort of work on this alternative monetary system and things like this. Um, where it's like, okay, so if that state fails, if that state doesn't have the consent of the governed, then what do you have now? Like the, the dollar's not going to work. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Right. And... and- this is why like it's it's so helpful for me to constantly like come back to the libertarian baseline right because it's so much easier um because at the end of the day it doesn't matter like how you feel about this social issue or how i feel about that social issue um as long as we're all working to maintain a system where liberty and freedom is at the forefront it doesn't matter what you believe and it doesn't matter what i believe because we're both free to to choose to make our own decisions and as long as whatever i'm doing isn't affecting your life and well-being and as long as whatever you're doing isn't affecting my life and well-being then we're both better off for it and we go on our way and and go about our business um and it's funny because a lot of americans at their heart of hearts they believe in that um yeah but they've lost touch with the the means of attaining it, and they've gotten so caught up in the tribalism that they are no longer able capable able to be capable of saying, "Yeah, I mean, I support George Bush, but um, maybe this Patriot Act thing that's going to take away all of our freedoms <laughs> and allow the government oh, to God. spy on us twenty four seven isn't the best way to go about." Um, anything like maybe even though i'm on this guy's team i shouldn't support this action because this is really really bad idea we don't think that way in america anymore at least not um not socially we might individuals might think that way like i know i think that way but at the social level or at the very least at the at the media and at the propaganda level like we've been programmed not to question those types of things of course yeah and when i first when I moved to America or when I got my green card, I, um, you know, I remember basically coming here and thinking, all right, I need to do my homework. Like I need to, you know, I'm, I'm an outsider. I need to understand America and, and make sure that I, you know, and, you know, establishing myself within this culture that, that already exists, not, not bending it to, to what I want it to be. And, um, you know, so, so one of the first things that I did was like, I read the constitution and declaration of independence and, and all these things. Hmm. And I remember reading this and, you know, watching all the, the like Trump derangement syndrome in the news and thinking, man, like America is, is not actually what these documents suggested is. Oh yeah. Not at all. Um, it was, you know, again, this was like early in my, my journey of really tumbling down the rabbit hole. And I actually think that those documents helped me tumble down the rabbit hole. Cause I was like, wait, America was founded on ideas that are much closer to what we talk about in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I'm observing is absolutely not that. Um, you know, it was, just, it was just very interesting. And, you know, I, coming from outside of America, um, you know, on the, on the gun issue, like, you know, in, in New Zealand, I've, I've always hunted. Like, I'm, I'm watched the really hardcore gun people probably, or I used to be what the hardcore gun people would have called, called a, a gun fud. Um, where, you know, that whole idea of like, oh, well, you know, I need my guns for hunting and things like this, but, uh, you know, these, these assault weapons are just unnecessary. Like that, <laughs> that probably would have been my, my view back in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, and bearing in mind as well in New Zealand, um, from a legal perspective, um, self-defense is not a legal reason to own a, a, a firearm. Like mm-hmm. it's actually illegal to, uh, you would get into this territory of wrong thing here, but like it's illegal to own a gun with the intent of defending yourself with it. Hmm. Anyway, 
Um, so, you know, I, I grew up hunting and things like this. And then I, I, I came to America and like, basically, um, you know, again, just, just trying to be intellectually honest. I'm like, all right, well, I need to challenge my priors here. Like, like why am I positioned in this mindset where I, I want, where I don't think that assault weapons should be allowed, but you know, hunting should be. And why, why do I think all of these things? And it's just pure, it's just pure narrative that you're fed. Mm-hmm. Like when you, if you are intellectually honest and actually look at numbers around these things, like you realize that this whole thing is just like a, a media spectacle. Um, you know, the, 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 every single shooting that's happened is, is a tragedy. I mean, it, it's, it's a mass murder, like, fuck. but like murder's illegal, right? Like the, the fact that, that you've got a gun doesn't, doesn't change the fact that that was a crime. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't see people calling to, to ban cars when, right. or, or trucks when like in, I think it was in Nice in France, there was that guy that, that got a truck and like, you know, Right. He, he achieved his goal pretty well. Like he killed a hell of a lot of people. Um, but there's just this spectacle that, that we've created and you start to look into it. And, and again, you know, I was starting to think about it in the context of reading the, the constitution. And I was like, wow, there's like a really important like case here, historically and philosophically to say the people of America, like what it's founded upon should be allowed to defend themselves against the tyrannous government. Mm-hmm. Um, like that, that's just fundamental. And, and, you know, it's written in this way, I'm no legal scholar or anything, but it's written in this way that it almost seems to come before any man created laws. Right. Yeah. No, it was, it was first principle. And I think a lot of Americans would do well to do exactly what you did and go back and, and read through these documents. And, um, you know, it, I think I, I had to kind of study these things on my own outside of school because the American education doesn't really do a good job of establishing like you, you you learn about these documents and you learn about like a lot of the founding fathers and some of the early presidents and some of the things they did and some of the places they went and some of the things they said but you don't really learn like what did they believe and why um and why are these ideals important and why do we strive to uphold them today like you don't you don't learn that um in american schools at least i didn't and i would assume most people don't just based on the way they act and the way they they carry their ideas um but there's so much we can learn from from this early period of history in America. America was kind of like the very first like experiment in like a, a libertarian society, um, and and things got really difficult really quickly. Like if you look at post America, like right after the Revolutionary War, um, Im- immediately what the country was doing was drawing down its forces that were left over from this. Um, from this sort of secession from as a British colony. And, and you had, cause, cause it was a big war, right? And, and America's like drawing down on its forces, trying to pay off all this debt that it incurred, um, dismantling ships, like breaking apart armies and sending everybody home. Uh, and, and things really quickly got difficult for this little tiny country who internationally was only recognized by a couple of sovereign nations, right? Who is now trying to forge its own path and make its own way economically in order to sustain itself now that it's in this resource-rich new world with all the freedom that it could ever want. Um, with all of these other power-hungry countries like prowling like wolves at the door, just waiting for their moment to pounce on weakness, right? And, and you have all of these um, American colonies or early American colonies that are like trying to trade um, with Europe because that was where most of the money was at the time. And all of these merchant cargo ships are getting captured. All these cargo ships that are going over to try and trade with Europe are getting captured by the Moroccans, captured by um, Tripoli pirates, captured by... Um, and, and it started what was known as the, the Barbary Coast Wars. And it was actually the reason that America started uh, its own Navy. That, that was Thomas Jefferson signed into action uh, the the creation of the Navy at the time. And it was to go and defend all of these ships that were trying to get to Europe to trade so they could bring money back to the U.S., so they could bring goods back to the U.S., so that this country could grow and establish itself. But it required the very first establishment of a little bit of power for the federal government, the power to raise funds to pay for this, the power to have a defense force. And and it, it slowly spiraled out of control from there. Um, but, but it was necessary. Like how did they, they didn't have a way to solve the problem at the time. Huh. That's really interesting. So what do you think would have stopped the, cause this, this would have implications then if, if we were to go into some sort of libertarian Bitcoin world, like what, what do you think, um, 
are the implications there? Like, why why were the merchants not able to create their own? Right, like, and that's systems. That's where it gets really interesting. Is like, you know, you, you kind of can go down the Rothbardian rabbit hole there and look at like private defense forces and security contracts and insurances, um, and 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 then you even get into things like private courts and um, magistrates that are maintained by uh, civilian elections and those types of things. And I don't, I don't know. And I don't think that we really know what the right answer is. And that's why I say that like early America, if you really study it closely and you study these ideas that the founding fathers had, um, you can learn a lot about like the libertarian experiments and maybe like see what worked, what didn't work, what, what should we have done differently? How did we end up where we are today? And I think it was a lot of like these little processions of ideas, these little compromises on, uh, on liberty that, that brought us to where we're at. And now we're willing to give up so much to get so little when back then, you know, they were, they were fighting over a half percent tea tax and, and throwing the tea into the harbor. Yeah, and again, that's the Rothbardian take on it as well, right? That you have to be supremely principled in this area because, um, and you know, this is why I don't really care much for any sort of libertarian party or anything because mm-hmm. like they'll always make these little compromises that that sneak in. And like from what I've seen of, of the the libertarian party in America at the moment, it's like it's like a light a diet version of the Democrats because they've they've compromised on so many little things, mm-hmm. um, and you know individually they don't seem like any big deal and you can come up with reasons to justify it. But you know, if you keep taking that to its logical extreme, you, you just end up with like just playing the game. Um, and I think, yeah, Rothbard writes that, right. Um, what's his, his, his sort of manifesto on libertarianism was a new for a new Liberty. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about this as well, where he, he basically like makes the case that like, you know, there are these foundational principles of, like, you know, the Austrian libertarian view, um, which is, you know, non-aggression and property rights. And um, it's like, yeah, like the, these are foundational, like don't compromise on them. Right. You, you cannot do anything that, that compromises on those. And uh, very quickly you find out that like, basically all laws compromise on those. Right. Yeah. And it, I don't even know if we really take that, that saying that you just said seriously, like right? foundational principles, right? It's, it's the foundation. If the foundation isn't sound. The entire building will fall and, and maybe it won't happen until it gets to be a hundred stories high. But at some point, you know, without a strong foundation, if you don't maintain that foundation, anything you build on top of it is liable to collapse. Um, and, and that's why, like, for me, you know, I'm, I'm str- I try to be at least strongly principled in my ideas. I'm, I'm willing to give up maybe a little bit of profit, like on my podcast, like turning down sponsorships, turning down guests who want to come in and, and talk about things that I might not agree with or that I don't really want to expose my audience to um, at a sacrifice of like my own profit and, and maybe my ability to kind of grow the channel and, and get higher profile people on just because I don't want to sacrifice my principles. Uh, I feel like if you don't stand for for your principles, you don't you're not going to stand for anything. What do you have if you don't have your principles? And I was just getting into this conversation in my Discord and and in some Twitter DMs before we had this call. Yeah, and and this is something that I think you see um, in a lot of the early Bitcoin companies that that sort of sold out for shitcoins and things because they raised VC money, which ended up forcing them to meet certain. Uh, meet certain performance targets. And so they had to like sell outs to whoever's paying. And so suddenly like Coinbase is shit Coinbase and, um, you know, like people are shilling Bcash and all these sorts of things. Like it's the same thing. It's just not sticking to these first principles. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I guess everyone's a scammer, but it, it's, it's interesting to see um, how quickly that goes bad. And the thing is, you know, this is talked about in Bitcoin a lot, but the idea that you only have one, one reputation, right? So I think there's a very strong case already, even in Bitcoin's early years, that you need to be principled because all of these people that have been involved in early Bitcoin companies that have sold out, like they've, they've lost that reputation. Like it's not coming back. Um, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners, I think, are open to the idea that like, you know, if Roger Ver came back, you'd, you'd welcome him with open arms as long as he was honest. It's like, yeah, like you can say that, but you really have to test whether that's going to happen in practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that it would. Um, you know, there's always going to be this cloud that's hanging over him. Um, Coinbase, man, they could go Bitcoin only tomorrow. And I don't think that we'd all flood back to it. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. I, I think that's a one-way street. So yeah, it's a, I think it's a good thing to be principled. Um, the thing is, Bitcoin is like a truly, well, so far is, is pretty close to a truly free market. And so people are going to, you know, act the way that they want to act as, as individuals operating in this, this sort of free paradigm. You, you're not going to be able to like force them to to go to some monopolized like if Coinbase like managed to lobby the government to monopolize the on ramp into Bitcoin, which by the way I wouldn't put past them. Like you know that's coercion. Um, you know there's there's suddenly no free market there, but as long as there's other alternatives, you know you you just get to watch while the Bitcoin is coalesced around other alternatives that haven't sold out on these things. Hmm. Yeah, and that's a good point on it being a one way street too because. Every compromise you make, right, is a step, you know, might, it might be a five foot forward step um, away from first principles. And it's like, okay, I'm just going to make this one little tiny compromise because it's going to be really beneficial for me and for everyone. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to make a lot of money for it and, and it's going to help grow my reach, grow my audience. It'll help, it'll help, it'll be a net positive, right? Just this one step of compromise. But once you make that step, you can't go back. Right, because it's a one-way street. You can only go in one direction. So unless you stand fast where you are, um, you're just very slowly making your way away from what this was all about to begin with. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I mean, again, using the Coinbase example, like that, when they handed over um, everyone's information, um, I don't know, was that a couple of years ago, a few years ago? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, they're, they're never, ever going to walk that back. Right. And then they, they acquired this, like, um, you know, blockchain surveillance company. I think they called it an analytics company, but um, I was listening to um, Tales from the Crypt recently and I, I enjoyed how it was, it was presented as a surveillance company. Hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're not going to... That was like dead on arrival. Like that was always going to get smashed by, by the Bitcoin community because like we already know how Coinbase acts. Mm -hmm. Like they're never going to be able to make a case that that was for analytics purposes. Like ever especially right. the people that came across with it. Right. Hmm. Well, um, I think the, the one conclusion we can make, you know, from all this is that Coinbase is trash uh, and that you should never <laughs> use Coinbase and that you should pretty much at any alternative uh, try to try to find something else. Use Cash App. Like if you have to use a KYC exchange, at least stick with one that's for now um, principled on being Bitcoin focused. Hopefully it stays that way. If not, maybe there'll be um, some room for them to replace. I'll tell you what, I wish I was Canadian so I could use bold Bitcoin because they um, are they are doing it right, man. Yeah, yeah. Although I've got to say with Cash App, like, you know, I mean, I think they can work out a lot of your information just from the cards that you hook up to it. But um, like I, I have literally just uh, enabled Bitcoin withdrawals on Cash App um, for, you know, stacking sats. Um, and it was pretty easy. Like it felt like KYC light. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously they've got my, they've got my, um, card details, so they can probably get all the information that they need from that anyway. But, you know, I, I went through, it was like, I don't know, like four steps was sort of like asking like for, for an email, an email address, um, asking like what you do for a job, like right. who your employer is. And then right. like, I was, I was verified. Like I didn't have to upload any IDs or anything. Um, I just, I don't know, they can probably get their information anyway, but from a user experience perspective, it was refreshing to not right. be sending them my freaking passport. Right, yeah. Very, uh, pretty good, I think, anyway. Um, so, you know, that, that's pretty much most of what I wanted to talk about there. I feel like we could probably go back and, and rehash some ideas, uh, go over some stuff some more, but we've been at this for about an hour now. So anything else that you wanted to hit on before we call it? No, not really. I mean, I have a tendency to ramble on whatever topic comes to mind. I think I, I when we were talking about setting up this this podcast, um, you know, I was I was keen to scope out what, what we were to talk about because um, yeah. I suppose this is just the nature of Bitcoin. I have a hundred ideas shooting around my head at any one time. Probably need to get better at meditating and focusing on something. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, if 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 people stay tuned on on what I'm up to, I, I don't. I'm not ready to shill it yet, but I'm working on on something that that addresses that accounting issue that we were talking about um, beforehand. Um, so, yeah, keep awesome. an eye out. But I, I don't have anything anything else to talk about for now. 
Well, cool, man. I, yeah, we had that conversation, our, our sort of pre-conversation a couple of weeks back. And I wish I had recorded that too, because I would have uploaded <laughs> it and people would have loved it. But I make that mistake all the time where people are like, I just want to um, talk and get to know you. And I'm like, but that's kind of what my podcast is. They always want to do like a pre-recording, but those are always so good. And I always wish I yeah. recorded them. I'm going to start secretly recording them and then I'm asking <laughs> after. Um, so where can people find you? Just real quick, go ahead and plug your Twitter. Yeah, just, just on Twitter, um, Zane Pocock, um, Z-A-N-E-P-O-C-O-C-K. Um, I've, I found this funny thing in the US that um, I, I, don't, uh, I don't pronounce my own name in a way that Americans understand. Like, apparently when I say Zane, it, it comes out with, it's like there's some sort of accent over the A and they think there's like a whole lot of different, different vowels in there that are coming up for some, some Zion thing or, or whatever. Um, anyway spell it out. Um, cool. but yeah, that's, that's, that's where I'm at. Yeah. Well, I will, uh, there will be a link to, uh, Zane's Twitter down in the show notes too. If you guys want to follow him, I definitely encourage it. Super smart guy. Super fun to talk to. Probably going to have to have you back on the show at some point, Zane. I would love to. It's been good. Welcome back guys. Please don't forget, go follow Zane on Twitter. He's got some really good tweets that he puts out sometimes, and you're probably going to want to keep up with the software project that he's working on. I think there's a lot of potential there. If you guys have been enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform it is that you're listening to, and if you find yourself keep coming back for more, please give me some stars or thumbs up or like or whatever it is on whatever platform you're listening to. You can find us on pretty much any of your favorite podcasting platforms like Spotify and iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher. We're on pretty much all of them. Anchor distributes it out to all of those for me. Or you can find all of our episodes over on BitcoinEchoChamber.com. So tell your friends about BitcoinEchoChamber.com. Get them plugged in. Get them woke. I think that's the first time I've actually ever said woke. Thank you guys so much for all the support for the show. Please go and check out Bitcoin-Only.com if you want more information and resources on Bitcoin and Bitcoin-only focused products. And if you're interested in reaching out to me, if you want to get in touch with me about the show or about sponsorships or anything like that, you can send me an email at bitcoinechochamber at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Twitter and DM me there at heavilyarmedc. That's the letter C. You guys can also sponsor the show through Anchor. It makes it pretty easy. Um, totally not required or recommended or anything like that. Just if you guys feel like you've been getting value out of listening to the podcast, you can throw me a couple bucks through Anchor and they don't take a very significant cut from that. So it's a really good deal for me if you want to do that. Totally up to you. Otherwise, guys, thanks for listening and I will see you in the next one.